So from many thousands of miles away, I am chatting with my friend Che, who has the Roleplay Rescue blog and podcast. And there's a cat yelling again. <laughs> Uh, so, Che, you started Roleplay Rescue when and what was leading up to you doing that? Uh, it must have been germinating for a while, I guess. I don't know. It was a bit sudden, actually. It was November 2018. Um and I'd been invited to do a podcast by uh, a guy. He had a podcast called The Mega Dungeon. Um, and I was in like the third episode of that. Uh, it never survived, unfortunately, for some reason. The, the host of that has all disappeared off the planet, as far as I can tell. Um, but it did this interview uh, with me, um, really about some of the things I've been blogging about around podcast. Uh, sorry, around my blog um, for this podcast. And it was just talking about my fire citadel of the... Uh, Dragon King's um, Mega Dungeon that I'd been sort of mucking about with on and off and talking about wanting to do online. Um, and I realized, having been interviewed, I just kind of realized how actually incredibly easy it was to get online and talk. Um, and then alongside that, I had this I had this growing frustration for a number of years about losing players constantly from my gaming table. Um, you know, to life, really. You know, like, oh, yeah, well, we just had our first kid. And so, bye. And, and of course, gamers go away and they thought, oh, we'll be back in about six years. Um, but I discovered that they don't come back in six years. Um, they just don't. Uh, they think they will and they keep saying they will, but they don't. I was quite frustrated by that. Uh, I was frustrated by people like kind of giving up the hobby for their job um, permanently, you know, or their partner permanently. Um, and I just I started by renting. I just started renting, you know, you fed up with this because <laughs> I'm fed up with this. And um, I kind of went from there, really. And and I started with like, it really isn't hard to get back to the table. I just wanted to get people back to the table. Like if you've bailed out for a number of years for your career, family, partner, whatever, the hobby's not over. You know, it's waiting for you. And that was the, the thing that got me started. And I was angry. So I got that off my chest. And then yep. I got response. You know, Anchor's great. You get call-ins and start getting response and questions. And I just kept going, really. Um, and I found my voice, I suppose. So, uh, yeah. It, but it starts, like I said, with somebody saying, hey, do you want to come and talk to me like this? Um, and I kind of thought, I could do that. <laughs> so I did. Yeah. <clears throat> now, whenever you think about, you know, going back let's say 30 or more years and you, you ended up with a core gaming group. Now of those people, are any of them back in the hobby? Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, one is kind of just about hanging in there. He's on one of my, he's playing on a Monday night game with me. Um, I've recently because of the pandemic, we lost my longest term gamer who I've been gaming with for 22, 23 years. I just can't get into the table because he's completely housebound with medical issues. That mean COVID is, you know, going to kill him um, and probably his wife. Um, and, you know, he's got four kids and it's, it's a complete mess for him. Yeah. Um, so he can't get to the table and he, he actually doesn't have like the technical um, gig, gear really uh to be online you know there's a few places in the uk where um our online connectivity is terrible and he lives in one of them so that's you know, the whole thing's just a bit of a mess for him and that's a shame because uh you know 
he has been at my table almost every week for 20 odd years. And then the other way around, you know, people had kind of gone away and then come back. Um, but I think a lot of the time there's a lot of anxiety around it. And, and like the guys who've um, kind of made it back, they've made it back really with a heck of a lot of support, if you know what I mean, like a lot of encouragement and a lot of, you know, um, just, in, yeah, just generally kind of helping them to see that it's not going to be as complicated as you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. That makes any sense. Um, yeah. But my, you know, my home table is dead, you know, like, uh, COVID killed us, uh, which is the saddest thing ever, really. So uh, before COVID, what was your, like, in-person gaming? Yeah, so we play on Friday nights, um, every Friday night since 1998, um, barring illness. So I guess in that time we must, you know, I suppose I would miss a session maybe three, four, five times a year, maybe. But other than that, we'd be playing. So, you know, it's fortnightly Friday night. So we'd probably play something like 40 sessions a, a year, something like that. Um, yeah. And um, it was a core group of around about three or four people who would come regularly in, but there was some turnover of extras who would join us for a while and then kind of go away. But the problem for me was that um, I could never settle the game down. So I had my first very long-term games, actually way back around about 2000, um, 98 through 99 into 2000, I was playing the alternative science fiction role playing game. And we ran a very long campaign with that. My wife took over that game. um, And then, uh, then we rolled into playing Dungeons and Dragons third edition when it got released in 2000. Um, so through sort of late 2000, we started playing that and that became a thing. Um, and we lost my wife from the game group because she can't stand D and D. Um, and <laughs> we played D and D third edition and 3.5 on and off. Um, my friend who I was mentioning earlier was kind of, um, a GM as well. So we'd kind of alternate a bit, but my, my problem is I keep buying reading wanting to try different games bring them to the table play for a bit um not satisfied move on to something else so my modus operandi for like 20 years was feel dissatisfied try something else feel dissatisfied try something else uh, which i think is what built towards the whole kind of role play rescue frustration you know like actually uh i was driving players away as much as anything because some of them would like fed up with me um, but I think also <laughs> I just got felt, felt with all the casualties along the way of, of various things, you know what I mean? Like people got older and got careers and got married and got kids and, you know, buggers wouldn't come to the gaming table, you know, what's the most important thing in life? We all know, don't we? <laughs> so I, I want to take COVID out of the equation when I ask about players who, so I'm talking about the players who really loved role-playing. Like it was not a casual, oh yeah, I'll try that. Like people who genuinely loved it. And then, you know, they they get older and other things happen. Do you believe that it's possible to answer the question why these people who loved it stopped? Because it's not, I'm not convinced that the answer is I got busy. I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, there obviously there's no one answer, but is there uh, like an overarching top three or something that you think about? I think the biggest problem is we have a quite a toxic idea in our society that um, the only serious endeavors in life are to do with, you know, work, making money, having families. 
And um, I think that's the number one thing that, you know, everybody sort of sooner or later starts buying into the idea that you've got to get serious about life. Um, I have refused that. I mean, you know, I'm a professional. I, I teach for a living. I've had a number of jobs over the years and different career kind of moves and shifts, um, but I've never stopped gaming. Um, I'm lucky I have a partner who respects the fact that I want to game and, and or like me, she's into sort of science fiction, fantasy and horror. So we share that. And I think she has a healthy respect for the creative kind of side of, of my personality. So she's never pushed me to, you know, give that up as it were. Um, I'm not, you know, I've observed many relationships, shall we say, where partners do kind of bully their, their other half out of it because they, you know, you've got to grow up. So that's the number one thing. Um, you know, I was, I grew up and certainly experienced the whole kind of, when you're going to get a proper job, when you're going to do something sensible with your life kind of narrative that we get. And I think that we, we had this pretty toxic attitude growing. I mean, I grew up through the seventies, eighties and, you know, and went out, started like left university in 92. So, um, you know, into the, into the, into the world of work, I was kind of lucky in one sense. I worked for games workshop, um, which was a complete boys club and in, in a bad way in lots of ways but actually you know i got to play with toy soldiers um and i was i don't know somehow able to sort of push off all of that um that toxicity so uh but it doesn't mean to say i wasn't affected by it you know but i just think that's the number one thing so what happens is people kind of start saying well yeah you know i've got this hobby it takes up so much quite a lot of time um so it's an easy victim when you know when someone says well you know got to get serious with life now you know it's an easy thing to cast away i mean people will quite happily spend hours sitting in front of the tv um and they will spend hours and hours and hours scrolling doom scrolling their way through facebook twitter whatever insta um but of course that's more acceptable you know i think playing computer games is more acceptable than role-playing games i think you know that that is kind of become more acceptable in our society and that's not necessarily a bad thing um but it's you know that's that's the number one thing uh, I think the second thing would be that um, role-playing games are hard. Um, you know, actually to get a good game is much harder than turning on your Xbox and clicking buttons. Um, uh, no, but I, I find those games frustratingly difficult, but not for the reasons, you know, that uh, a role-playing game might be frustratingly difficult because the, the role-playing game is an intellectual exercise, whereas, um, well, frankly, yeah, I don't find that with computer games. Um, I'm much more interested in strategy computer gaming, um, and that can be fine. But again, uh, I, I, you know, and, and quite quite involving and all of the rest. But I, I, as a preference, I would rather engage my imagination rather than look at pixels on the screen. So, um, and when it comes to other forms of board gaming, like board gaming and card gaming and all of that, I think it's relatively trivial compared to the challenges of role playing game. So I sound like an absolute intellectual snob in saying this, um, and that's probably because I am. <laughs> uh, but you know uh, short of like sitting down i mean it's, it's it's up there with a creative act of writing a script or writing a novel or for me i, I think it's it's up there you know, i think it's that kind of challenge especially if you're going to run a, gr a group and you're going to run a game on long term um, i think there is a lot to it on the other hand it's the simplest thing to get into um cheaper than anything else but it's just hard you know and i think like sustaining a group uh that's hard and I guess that's my third thing. I think the social interaction bit of our hobby, which is so valuable and what makes it so so great, is also the thing that makes it crap because um, people can be horrible and people can be selfish and people can be, um, you know, dismissive of others 
you know, and uh, I think it's really hard to find a good group. I think it's really tough to find good people who are wanting to commit to something. And then we're back around the circle. Why is it difficult to commit? Um, probably because there's so much choice out there. I mean, we live in this now, this digital age where uh, it's really easy to find a game, uh, but it's really hard to find a player who'll commit to your game. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I find that quite frustrating. So I think that that's my, you know, the whole thing. And, I, and in there is the whole idea with, with that interpersonal difficulty is that whole thing that most people don't know what they want. Um, you know, and I think that that is a massive barrier. People don't take the time to think about what they want. They just think that role playing is one thing, which is the thing that's in their head and what they want to do. Um, and it really isn't, you know, if there's anything role play rescue doing that over the last three years has taught me is, oh my goodness, this is way more diverse than anyone imagined. And that's a good thing. My own thoughts on the whole phenomenon of, having people who genuinely loved it and were even obsessed in it uh, with it whenever they were in their you know teens or twenties and then stopping. So role-playing really explodes starting in like end of 70, early, early eighties, it explodes. And so we don't have a control group to test this, but my working theory is that the internet and especially social media destroy so much of our personal and creative lives. And so people who really loved it, they're addicted to all these other millions of distractions and they're all unsatisfied. There's nothing satisfying about it um, as far as I'm concerned. And that, like you mentioned, people will waste dozens of hours a week watching crap shows or scrolling on garbage social media and then say, well, I don't have the time to do the the genuine deep thing. Um, So I find that really sad. But so with Roleplay Rescue, I'm sure you've had many people return to the hobby because of your conversations. Is that true? Yeah, I don't know about many, but there have been some um, people tell you. Uh, I guess that yeah, there's going to sure. be for every person who tells me, there's probably some that didn't, right? So that's my guess. But there's certainly been, we're up into double figures, probably up above 20, 30 people who've been in touch over the three years saying, hey, I'm back to the hobby because of you. Um, it doesn't happen enough that I. I cease being surprised because I'm always surprised by that. I'm always like really gratified, really excited about that. But at the same time, it blows my head off my shoulders, quite frankly, because I kind of think, what, me? I did that? Um, Because honestly, I didn't think of us doing anything other than ranting into the void, you know. Um, But yeah, there have been. And and it's really interesting because the, the stories are very, very similar. They are almost always some version of, I used to do this and I really enjoyed it. Then life happened. And then there was this period where I was tempted And then there's this period where I started buying products and looking around and then I built this level of anxiety about it. And I got really stressed about the idea of doing it. And then I had a game and I I had an amazing time and now I'm continuing. And it's almost always that trajectory. There's this kind of, this thing of um, players returning and there's a large period of starting to look at the market, buying products, uh, and in a growing sense of anxiety about what that first game is going to be like. And it seems that the most terrifying thing is to sit down 
digitally or at a table with a bunch of strangers really and running game. Um, like I said, it's the, it's hard. It is really hard. I think it's really emotionally challenging. And, um, I think psychologically challenging as well. I think we, we make ourselves wholly vulnerable when we put ourselves out there to run a game. But what's interesting is almost all these people as well, uh, they, they set up to GM. Um, so that's interesting. It seems like the listeners of a podcast, uh, are much more likely to become a GM than a player. Maybe that, Maybe that's the bias because I'm a GM by nature. It's what I prefer to do. And that's what I'm always talking about. So maybe I'm setting that up. I don't know. And that's why I wonder how many players there are who turned up to be a player and maybe just just take part in it and enjoying it. Uh, and they're not going to necessarily get in touch because there wasn't, they don't see that as significant. I see it as hugely significant. If you turn up someone's game and play, that's a big deal. Um, you're being incredibly generous when you do that, if you ask me. Um, and of course, being a GM is another whole layer of like generous service to the, to your fellow gamer. Right. But it is, is an incredible thing to do um, a creative act that I, I don't know anything quite like it. But yeah. You're lots, I guess. Um, I, I wish, I mean, you know, I kind of wish there was a way of knowing, um, I, you know, there's a part of my head that fancifully likes to believe that, you know, that, maybe going to touch lots of lives to be honest with you touching one was enough the first time someone said hey i'm back because of that that was enough to fuel it you know and keep me going um but it is nice i mean you know i had emails just last week i've had people contacting and saying usually by email uh, and just like a yeah i'm back um, occasionally people are really generous and phony and i think the most recent one was a guy called paul who's uh, one of the role play rescue patrons now um and he just called in to talk about his first games um and he's he's running lots now <laughs> it's kind of gone insane it's like they it's like the dam breaks you know but um yeah i but you know again the pattern is i think the pattern's interesting you know it's kind of get curious. They start listening to a podcast to talk about some of the practicalities, buy some products. There's a period of anxiety and build up. And then there's a kind of take the plunge. So briefly, when you think about the difference uh, between gaming in person around a table and playing online, I think it's true that uh, there is a difference. How much does it affect you psychologically and how much do you experience others being affected by being online rather than in person? Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, I sat at a table of, well, six weeks ago now for the first time, obviously in a long while. Um, and that was interesting to refresh my memory, but it was so much more relaxing to do that. Online is a very focused thing. I mean, I'm thinking here now, we know we're using... Uh, video call to to do to do this, and it's the same tool that I would be using to run a game. I, I use Zoom for that, and two hours looking at the screen, focusing, trying to. I mean, really encourage my players to use video because facial stuff so important. Yeah. Um, I get some of the body language, you know. Um, but yeah, I don't know, it just is. You don't have the biggest thing I feel like you don't have um, is you don't you can't feel it. I don't know if this makes any sense, but I'm at a table. I can feel the table. There is an emotional thing going on and a sense of connection between people that comes from being in a room uh, and you just get none of that online. And that therefore means you have to use every other clue that's coming, whether it be tone of voice or what you can see on camera, what people are asking, the length of time they're silent, what they're 
doing, what they do with their character and all those clues to get a sense of what's going on at the table. Um, and of course, being a GM isn't just about running the rules to adjudicate, isn't just presenting the world and describing, you know, it, it isn't just role-playing NPCs. It's also about being host and it's about being um, the one who kind of drives and leads a group of people to do an activity together. I, I, what I feel anyway. And um, yeah, it's just so tiring. So two hours has become kind of my top. So if, if I'm, if I'm gaming for two hours, like online, I'm exhausted. Well, I could go four or more hours face to face and not feel anywhere near as exhausted. So there is definitely something going on there. Um, yeah. and, and it is, I think it's just that there's so much more, you're trying to pay attention to so much more uh, where you more intuitively do that at the gaming table when you're with people. When I sat down in a sat in a really busy gaming store uh, with some people with sort of run-up characters to start a RuneQuest game about six weeks ago, um, and we were there for three hours, and when I, I drove there and I drove home, I didn't feel anywhere near as exhausted. And I was, you know, full-on helping a guy who's never played roll up a character and develop a character and go through an entire backstory and really complicated stuff going on. And then monitoring two more experienced players who were doing theirs at the same time and having these conversations and all the rest of it. But I wasn't as tired. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I would love to. Uh, I would love for someone to crack that mystery because there is um, kind of this thin barrier of communication. I don't know if it's the half second delay mm. while people are talking and listening. I don't, I really don't know all the elements, but it, it's definitely there and it's uh, it really affects me by comparison. Um, mm. So I don't know if there's a cure for that. I know that there are the, the number one problem is people doing anything else online while you're gaming. But yeah. I mean, that's also a threat in person if people have their phones and they're texting or whatever they're doing. Um, I mean, so that danger is always there in the, in 2020s anyway. Yeah. I feel though that there's a bit more to it than that. So I think when you're online, you have to wait and listen more. I mean, you're doing it right now. Um, and you have to sort of, I don't know, holding a table's attention. I mean, I've got a game meets on uh, Monday nights, which is, if it has six players, so there's seven of us. And um, obviously I get a lot of spotlight time being a GM. I get a lot of time talking and answering questions and dealing with stuff. Um, but uh, each player, essentially, I don't know what proportion, of, I mean, they're going to be presumably spending at least one seventh of their night silent. Um, but it's more than that, probably. There are some players who I've noticed, you know, they're a little bit more reticent to pick up much more interesting on listening and watching, not as involved in whatever's particularly happening in the story. Um, then they may well be sitting there for a half hour, 45 minutes without saying a word. And I don't really know what their engagement is. When I'm at a table, what I notice is that players might have side conversations. They may well be writing little notes to each other and passing those around. There may well be like little hand signaling stuff going on. And none of that really happens online. The chat, I, I have a chat open on mine and very rarely did anyone post anything in the chat, you know? So there's not, there's no other, unless they're off texting each other, which I doubt um, or something like that. I, you know, as far as I can tell, they're not interacting in the same way. And I think that makes it a colder experience. I think it makes it, 
you know, and, and so in my game, I, I tend to, when they go off and there's a bit more joking, a bit more relaxed, you know, like kind of conversational going on, I just back out and I actually give them space to do that, um, which can eat into session time, but it does mean that the players interact and they laugh and they, you know, and, and all of that a lot more. Um, so we might not get as much done, uh, but it's a much more collegiate kind of sense going on. I think the play, games I've played in where it's driven, like, and we've got two hours and we're going to play, um, and the GM is really driving it, uh, they can be quite cold. I, I've walked away from games feeling like it was all right, but I didn't feel like I did a lot. You know, I didn't get involved um, because of that human, there's sort of a lack of that ability to, you know, sort of talk over. I think that's part of the gaming table experience to quietly, the quiet little whispered conversation with someone next to you or opposite you in the game, you know, and that sort of stuff. I think it's part of it personally, but maybe I'm crazy. I never had the, I never had the problem with people using phones and other things that weren't game at the gaming table. Everyone was polite enough to be focused and presumably we're having a good enough time. Um, I have that problem online. I think it, I think people are just, you know, I I know I've done it. So, you know, you're sitting there and you start thinking, I'll just check my email then, you know, and as, and I realize as soon as I do that, I've disengaged. Right. So I might as well not be there. (laughs) It's just, it's really sad thing to admit. So I wonder if it's just a brute fact that playing online will never be the uh, same quality of connection or experience and maybe that's just a brute fact yeah um, maybe i think it's also what's driving this use of vtts and the the whole kind of map culture and token culture which has grown up i mean that's always been a strong thing i've i used them in the past you know on the gaming table um but online people are much more interested in having that kind of visual experience going on um and, and i did that for a while when i first played online you know really worried about building dungeon maps and having the as the light went through the tunnel they can see everything you know kind of as it goes that whole top down thing with miniatures um, and it does keep players engaged because what they're doing is they're playing a board game you know um right. and that's great fun but the quality of the, the decision making based on a rolling character wasn't any better and arguably worse. Um, and so in more recent games, I, I took all that away and we stripped it down to I'm going to have you on screen and we may even well roll real dice and you have your character sheet in front of you and I don't care about anything other than trusting you, you know? And and those games have been higher quality and the quality of the role playing as in playing your character has been better engagement has been harder to maintain but i think the game itself has been better or at least it felt better um, and lots of players have said so so but i can't help but feel like the obsession with etc's has a lot to do with keeping people trying to keep their attention um which of course is extremely compromised in a world where we can't go more than about two minutes without checking our phone you know yeah it's really sad i've I've often thought that, so when we're playing, whether in person or not, obviously the polite thing to do is to not be checking any anything else, but you're also putting people in the beginning of a detox while you're trying to have a session. And the better way is spend a month offline and then we can role play. I mean, that's kind of, that's a wild ideal, but it is yeah. true that if you, if you, you know, have people who are willing to, you know, do the right thing and, and not be online, not checking, whatever they are essentially um, in the throes of detox while yeah. they're trying to role play. Yeah. 
And that's so true. I mean, I I know during the one of the best things about pandemic was making a decision to you know kind of start doing that more detoxing away from you know I've, I'm off of several social media platforms on a couple, but I've got strict limits on when I'm on. Generally, I'm on a lot less. Um, you know, and it's you know you sort of all, uh, constantly asking yourself the question, "What well, what's this for?" is a really helpful tool. Uh, you know, it's a kind of g- general design question, isn't it? For everything but what's it for what, what what's it been on twitter for um you know for me it's for posting up links to my blog and my podcast and engaging a little bit with some of the people on there who might want to ask me questions um and occasionally i'll share personal bits because you know it's kind of fun to do that occasionally um but that's what it's for it's about engaging a little bit of the audience who you know, you might want to know about your stuff. And even that I'm dubious about, I'll be honest. I kind of can't start thinking, well, people are going to find it. You know, I'm of the view that if something's good, you tell your mates about it. And I think, you know, you'll link to it. And when I, I was terrified about getting off Facebook. I'm off Facebook, but I was terrified about that because I thought I was going to so drop my, you know, people won't come to me, they won't engage me, I won't see my podcast. Actually, my numbers went up. Um, so <laughs> go figure, you know, <clears throat> but in, in the end, I think kind of coming away and doing that, then when I started to play games online, as I did more and more, it was easier to, uh, ignore those things. Cause I trained myself. You're absolutely right. This sort of detoxing process of training yourself away from those behaviors is really, really important. And then what I found was as well is that then that loosened up more time for preparation. So I started to think about the games I wanted to do and what I wasn't to run. And I realized I was trying to do too many different things, but it, it became the quality of the thing I'm doing. You know, what can I add to my, to my game that would be really cool and maybe worth my time. Um, and I found I needed less prep time than I thought I would, but I gained the time through coming off social media a bit, you know, and, and, and then away from TV a bit. And, you know, instead of like spending months, you know, I used to watch all of the next generation kind of every two years uh, <laughs> because, you know, I love the show really good. I haven't right. watched it for a couple of years now. It's great. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a lot of hours saved when you think about yeah. it, you know, and, yeah, and, uh, and, and I can use that for reading and I can use that for thinking and I can use that for writing. Um, and I, I recommend it. You know, I just, when I, mean, I was delighted this week, I've read a, I read a whole of a whole new book, uh, got on Friday and I finished it this morning at 4am. Um, you know, I'm up early and I, you know, when I'm the can't sleep, I get up and read. Um, but yeah, you know, I read a book in six days in a 370 odd page book. I don't speed read. Um, really enjoyed it. And I'm kind of proud of myself because I can't remember, I don't remember having conversations with many people who who do that regularly. And I certainly haven't like nailed a book in a week for a long while, you know. Yeah. I have a lot of things. Again, it's a tendency to, isn't it, to have a lot of things on the go and never finish any of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that the plague of our time. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, I, I could preach for days on it uh, and I'm guilty of it, uh, yeah. no doubt, but it really is disturbing. There was a, a book, I can't remember the author, um, the book title is called Deep Work, and he talks about how divorced we are from concentration, which is required to do anything of substance. Mm. And the only cure is to cull away all of the garbage. That's the cure. Um, yeah. But it's it's hard because we're talking about addiction, right? Yeah, we are. And um, also, you know, this wanting to please people is another part of the addiction for me. So, you know, I run cur- currently on a couple of games that um, 
I'm fine with running, but I honestly, I'm running them for other people. I'm running them because those are the guys I like to game. I like those guys. I'd like to game with them. And that's the kind of game they want me to run. It's not the game I want to run necessarily, Yeah, but I'm, I'm kind of okay with it. It's a compromise. Um, and I think that was always the case face to face because it was harder to get people to your table. So you kind of, whoever you've got, you had to adapt. Um, but even online, it's still the case. I think that, you know, ultimately if you're going to hold people's attention and have them come back for something substantial, um, you know, we always have to compromise. Um, the degree of compromise is what's in question. And, and I'm finding that the more honest I am about this, the more I'm sort of saying, I kind of, it's okay running this, but it's not really quite where I want to go. Can we twist this? And can we, you know, the closer I can get to something that I enjoy too, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but again, if I dropped those games, I'd have more time for the game I want to run, but I probably wouldn't have any players. So mm, how do you, <laughs> you know, how do you marry that up? That's hard. Let me ask you about um, your teaching. What do you teach and who are you teaching to? All right. So I'm a British high school teacher and I teach religious education. Um, in our school, we call it religious studies because that's what the exam boards call the subject. But religious education is the formal subject. So in the United Kingdom since 1945, it has been law that every student has like 5% of their curriculum time minimum religious education, which in 1945 was Bible study, but now is comparative religion, uh, ethics, philosophy. And um, also uh, we we teach like what's known as the PSHCE, the personal um, social you know, health, community, and economic educational stuff and the citizenship stuff the government wants us to teach. Uh, so that's the subject. Um, for me, it's, uh, I sit at the hub of humanities. You know what I mean? Like if you think about um, religious belief and religious behavior sort of sits at the heart of culture, whether you like it or not. And I think like every, it touches on every single other subject. I have to teach about science. I have to teach about history. I have to teach about what is formally geography. Um, I have to teach about art and I have to teach about drama and I have to teach about all the impact of those things because to be a human being and to, especially if you're talking about religious beliefs of the six major world religions, you know, all of those topics touch upon that as a subject. And so it's rich for me. Um, and I always talk about, you know, the reason I get out of bed every morning is to create little communities of discovery where people can feel accepted. That's the fundamental reason for me. Role play is one way I do it. Teaching in the classroom is another way I do it. Those little communities of discovery, you know, whether it's a group of 15 sixth formers or whether it's 32 year sevens. Um, but, you know, what are we what are we talking about today? And it's a, it's a route based around inquiry. You know, we always have an inquiry. Uh, what's the question we're asking and what we're looking at? And, and we kind of go from there, really. Um, Pedagogically, I'm quite experiential. So what that means is I like I like the the players in the room, the, the the kids, the students to engage all of their human faculties. So we might use music, we might use light, we might use uh, you know action. Uh, we'll be doing a lot of questioning and talking. Um, we might you know dig into a book or whatever. But the point is that we we use what we need to learn, um, and I think. Again, the subject I've got allows me that latitude. I can be much more progressive in terms of and what I do. At what point did you start uh, teaching role-playing to the kids and how did that evolve? Yeah, so it started out quite early. Um, so as I mentioned before, I worked for Games Workshop for like 12 years. 
Um, and one of the things, I mean, I started out as a store guy and a store manager eventually, you know, after about a year or two, I became a store manager. So, you know, you had teens coming into your shop and you would teach them like how to play the game or run games for them, you know, games night on a Thursday night. So I learned all of the skills uh, that I bring to that, you know, in the GW hobby store, not with role-playing games, but with tabletop war games, playing Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000 and Blood Bowl and Necromunda through the 90s and into the early 2000s. Eventually became an events manager for them, did that on a very big scale, and then eventually worked on through to what was called a community club project, which I championed, where we worked with local individual clubs, especially in schools, and try to figure out how to support them as a company uh, and encourage people, you know, like empower teachers. So then I left, I got made redundant from, from Games Workshop, and I spent four or five years in recruitment, and that was the job I did until I made the transition in teaching, which is about 10, 11 years ago now. Um, so I trained first year, second year, I, I had my first teaching position and it was the end towards the end of that first year in my first teaching position, as I just passed my probationary period of the first year, um, when I was fully qualified and then obviously kind of like, what do I do? How can I make this fun for myself? So I started a, a you know, a role-playing club and, um, it's always been the same strategy, really. I, uh, pick a game. So most recently, obviously, using the fifth edition Dungeons Dragons because it's hugely popular and the kids know about it. Um, and they'll ask about it, you know, oh, you're the guy who does role playing. Do you play D&D? It's like, yeah, okay, I can do that. So I introduced them uh, to Dungeons and Dragons um, and you know, the idea of running a game for them. Um, usually the same scenario. Uh, I've got this particular scenario that I've run hundreds of times now um and they have a bit of a taste of the game and then it's a case of like sometimes you'll have some players who are more dependent and you'll run a game from for a bit longer generally what happens they start bringing friends along get interested or they go away if they bring friends along and, and get interested then there comes a point where there's too many so i have to turn around and say look someone's gonna have to run a game um put a starter set or some other kind of basic product in their hands and tell them to go away now the thing is Trusting kids is really important here. Giving, I just did this um, like a week and a half ago. We got to the point at the end of half term, just for the holiday, I mean now, where there were 18 students turning up to a game. I cannot run a game for 18 students. I need two of you at least to go away over the holidays and, you know, like become GMs. Four players went, yeah, I'll do that. Four product boxes taken. And actually it wasn't a case of them going home and coming back like, in a week and a half's time, it was actually they they there and then that night started to use the product and just opened them up and started playing. And and kudos kudos to the companies that have made these beginner products because the kids could do it. But I think we underestimate the kids. You know, like I was about nine, ten years old when I started gaming. We got given a product and we figured it out. And I'm kind of like, here's a product. I've shown you basically how to play. You know, here's a product. Go be a GM. And like I said earlier, it's kind of hard but also not it's really simple you sit down with your buddies and you start like making stuff up right um and rolling dice and you kind of make mistakes and then what happens is that you might stick your hand up and sir comes over and helps you or someone who knows a bit more comes over and helps you um and that's about as much they get from me i think i got asked seven questions in total in a three-hour session face-to-face when four groups of kids went off you know so amongst those four those four groups, you know, seven questions it was in, in a three hour period. Great. 
Um, and that hopefully what will happen is that some of those will stick. So what normally happens is someone goes, I'll do it. And then they find it a bit harder or they just, you know, don't really want to do that. And so they may hand the box over to someone else or maybe they just don't come back. I don't know, but usually they do come back and play. Um, and they, they run stuff for a bit, you know, and, and sometimes the GM sticks because they enjoy doing it. And if they don't, what normally happens is they pass the product to someone else. Um, and that's fine. <laughs> um, it's about word of mouth. I, I genuinely think that our hobby spreads via word of mouth and example um, more than anything else. And so whenever you, uh, you observe these kids, um, are you observing the, the changes that occur, um, like kids becoming, my guess is more confident, more yep. integrated, more mm-hmm. create, like, like the, the doors open for their creativity. Are you observing that? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, we could do this in schools. We could engage their creativity and their, all of their energy. We could say, we could actually stop teaching curriculums the way we teach them. And we could go, right, here's a problem. Bunch of kids go solve it, you know, and we could let them do it. And, you know, we could pose them a a challenge or, you know, and, and let them go solve it. But essentially what we do with the role playing game, we go, here's a product, here's a game, um, you know, go, go make that happen. And they do. And then what you notice is they just come out of them, out of the shell. You know, um, I'm just thinking of a, a couple of students who are really quiet, introverted, you know, I, I utterly relate to kind of kids. You know, they were much happier with the head of the book, you know, reading whatever. Um, they are creative and artistic and, and usually it's all hidden because their mates will bully them or people around them will bully them, right? And then they sit at the table and they pulled open the box and they, I, I encouraged them to do their, you know, sniff the box because it smells nice. And they're like, oh, it does, doesn't it? And then they start popping out stuff and bringing out maps and bringing out character sheets and getting out dice. And before you know it, someone's got the book and they've read it. And the level of enthusiasm and excitement and they kind of light up. You know, when you're the next day, some kid flags you down the corridor and says, I've been thinking about this scenario with this, this, and this, and this, and I'm going to use this monster and that. And I'm going to, they're going to have this treasure at the end. What does that sound like? And you're going to go, yeah, great. Do it. Um, you know, when a week later they've talked about how they got around with their mates every night that week, because you lent them the box, remember? So they're coming to the D D club on a Wednesday night, right? But actually they're not playing just on a Wednesday night. They're playing on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. And then they see you next Wednesday and they move the campaign on, you know, I'm just a convenient venue. That, that, that excitement and power. And yeah, I mean, they're, way more creative than we give them credit for. Um, and and what's more important as well is that watching them as a new generation uh, behave in ways that are great but different. So, for example, um, I've got a co- couple of students who are, you know, essentially they change their gender pronouns. So little things like, can I change the pronouns on my character sheet? Yeah, of course you can. Great. This this character, they are, um, you know, they are this thief, da 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 da, da. Um, and suddenly they're relaxed because they have permission to be themselves, right? And they're, and obviously the first persona is essentially themselves, the doppelganger self, right? That I'm playing me, and I'm in a fantasy world. Over time, you start seeing them experiment with that, and they start like idealizing some things, and they start like, um, or they start mucking about with different traits and abilities, you know, and of themselves, and trying out different personality elements and you see kids try what's it like to be sneaky you know um what happens what happens what's the consequences of me being like betraying all of my friends it doesn't last very long my character gets killed 
ooh, okay, I won't do that again. Um, and, and this is all life lesson stuff as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. They're all learning how to interact and be a human being, but within the safe confines of a fantasy world, you know? Um, yeah, it's great. Great and passionate, passionate energy from the kids, really. That I, I don't, I, The way I can put it is that you see them more genuinely, I think, than anybody anywhere else in their life. You know, their parents don't know them anyway. Um, they don't. And, and teachers, we see a sort of version of them. Um, but when you, you're the teacher observing them in the game room and you get out, like when I'm not running the game, this is when this happens. If I'm running the game, they're just students again. They go into, you know, wait to tell teacher to tell me what to do mode. And they will relax a bit. But it's when you go, here's a product, go away, go and play with it. That's when you see the, the life. I have a friend who um, raised his son uh, on role-playing from the earliest age and then all of their friends came over and just, you know, this whole ripple effect of, you know, one kid leads to five kids, <laughs> leads to all these different groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, whenever we started, when we were kids, it was a nerdy venture. And so you only had a few friends who were doing it. And it was this kind of narrow pipeline. And now that it's become fashionable, that dynamic's got to have radically changed where it's no longer this thing that anyone laughs at. It's this, you know, billion dollar industry. I think a lot of kids who are outside of like the fantasy, sci-fi, horror um, kind of realms, you know, in media still see it as pretty geeky. Um, But what's interesting is that the geeky kids are a heck of a lot more confident about being geeks so they're much more likely to defend themselves um you know quite passionately and quite strongly again you know against the critiques of you know the kids who are into sport or the kids who are into drama or art or whatever and all those other things and obviously they're also likely to have it as part of a range of things that they do you know there are kids who can't come for a while because they take part in the school production of the of you know whatever play that's going on for example um which is something that i would never have done do you know what i mean as a kid i was way you know didn't didn't necessarily have that crossover of you know i've got kids who are hugely into music for example but what it tends to be is the creative kids who come to to play D D. um all the kids with uh quite interesting bit um sort of uh I, I, you know, learning difficulties or those kind of classical labels, you know, the classical labels of autism and, uh, and all of that. I much have a much higher percentage of kids who have those kind of labels of, you know, um, I'm not sure that, you know, I, I really fully, um, buy into all of that. If you know what I mean, I just think these are like kids who are highly energetic, highly creative, highly curious, very sharp, very smart, you know, um, and they're just the rest of the world around them tends to not tolerate that or not give them opportunities or, you know, button them up in whatever, right. In whatever means, you know what I mean? I'm, I don't know, you know, but when they get a, you know, their character in front of them and some dice and their buddies, they're away. So, you know, it all works. Um, and the biggest, I think the education that I've got from it is that you just never underestimate teenagers. They're just going to blow your mind. <laughs> yeah. Have you had any cases where, like, let's say a character dies, uh, where the kid took it very badly? Or do they all kind of accept that it's part of the game and they're all happy with it? 
Yeah, I, I don't think I've seen it too terribly badly. I think that they do get affected. I think that, you know, there are kids who role play much more closely, you know, into their character, if you like, a little bit more closely. But they're all capable of separating fantasy and reality quite happily. Um, I think that, you know, the other thing about playing D&D is, you know, it. I, I realised this early on, actually, but um, you know the, the reason why Resurrection was put into the game uh, reportedly is because Arneson killed off one of his friend's characters and they felt really, and this went down very badly and he felt a bit guilty about it. So huh. he worked out a way of getting that character resurrected. I've read that recently in John Peterson's book, um, uh, most recent book called Game Wizards. And um, I kind of realized that actually this is the sort of thing that kids do, you know, like, so if they, if the character's gone down, they'll find a way, you know, oh, how can I resurrect my character? I can't move my character back. And of course, most GMs do exactly that. They they engineer a mini little story to get the character back, right? Um, and I've seen that happen a couple of times. But generally speaking, it's just quicker to go and roll up a new one. So they just do that. Um, and the kids will obviously roll up essentially the same character quite happily until the GM tells them they can't, you know, that kind yeah. of stuff. So, you yeah. know, in the end, no foul, no harm, right? It's just right. fine. <laughs> But um, yeah, I, it, you know, the, 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 I don't see kids blubbing on the floor about like their character dying. I do see occasionally kids get upset with each other when they really can't negotiate the social niceties of it. And I've had to, you know, as a uh, as a GM or certainly as a teacher, step in sometimes and just give a bit of advice on on that on a social level, especially with the kids who whose social skills are much weaker. Um, sure. And but you just see them learn from that. They kind of oh, okay. You know, a little bit of advice, a little bit of uh, comfort, a little bit of like encouragement. They'll they'll be back in the fray, you know. Um, so that's all good. Mm-hmm.